episode 75 of the Win 6 podcast, official podcast of BehindTheBookPass.com. I'm your host, Sites Editor-in-Chief, Adam McGee. And joining me this week, as usual, we have Jordan Tresky. Hello, Jordan. Hello. Now that he's, he's not back with us this week, what are your true feelings about Ty Windish? Big time, big time Ty Windish. Um, I can't. I was searching for something funny to say, but I can't think of something. Jordan's just too well-mannered. You're you're much better at the, the casual ribbing. I, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know what that says about me. But moving oh, on. That, yeah. Temporarily, the... My insults will come ticking fast, I'm sure, as we go on. <laughs> Last week, in the company of Ty Windish, we did our first in a series of Books History Month podcasts, starting out naturally with the beginnings of the franchise, the late 60s, true to the 70s, and the Milwaukee Bucks, one and only championship win. This week, we are obviously moving on to the next period in Bucks history, which may be a little controversial, as it wasn't the one where the championship was delivered. But if we're talking purely on results, this is clearly the golden age of Bucks basketball. This is the most consistent period in the franchise's history. I could describe this as late 70s to, I guess, mid to late 80s. Probably the best way of describing this podcast is the Don Nelson books. That's what we're here to talk about. For those of you who aren't familiar with your book's history, Maybe you're used to the mediocrity that we've seen in the last 30 years. <laughs> I, I was going to say plus decades, but in the last 30 years, with this season marking the 30-year anniversary since Don Nelson resigned as head coach. So basically, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Don Nelson era, you've had things pretty rough with the exception of one season in the last 30 years the only 51 season the books have had in the last 30 years. You might be surprised to find out, but things were a lot better, a lot better back in the late 70s 
early 80s. Just imagine the time people were watching Saturday Night Fever, Bell Bottoms, uh, Big Hair, Roller Rinks were a thing. That's that's the 70s, where it Jordan, all began. Jordan has set the scene beautifully. And as the 70s wound down, Bucks fans had grown used to this Larry Costello coach team. This Larry Costello coach team who had surpassed 60 win seasons on three occasions, had won a championship, had lost in a finals. Professional basketball in the NBA was back in Milwaukee and the team was pretty good. And then towards the end of Larry Costello's reign, it all started to tail off. Um, it's not hard to pinpoint what happened, what went wrong. Basically, <laughs> basically it started out when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar handed in a trade request. He got injured very soon after that, missed the start of the 74-75 season. Trade took basically a season to materialize. So in that year, the books had their first sub 500 season since their very first year in the NBA. Kareem was traded. The next year was a 30 win season. Or sorry, the next year was a 38 win season. The following year, 30 win season. And then with that, there was the arrival of Don Nelson. Under Nelson's guidance, he was head coach for the Bucks for 11 seasons. The Bucks only missed the playoff once. In his first year, they had a record of 44 and 38. Then it went 38 and 44. In 1979 and 80, the playoff streak began. The Bucks went 49 and 33, and they set the table for what would be a seven-year streak of 50 wins or more. Let's start out there before we go into any more specific detail on the cast of characters in this era of books basketball, maybe specifics of some of the seasons and the results from around that time. We talk so much about the likes of, say, the Spurs now, and rightly so, and their consistency and how they've managed to achieve, I think it's 16 straight years of the playoffs now. It's, uh, it's got to be more. Because Duncan played almost 20 years, right? 19, you're right. So 19 straight years for the Spurs, which is incredible. And only a few teams in history have managed to do that. But it's another thing to be a team who manages to do that and also to go on and you're not just making the playoffs, you're coming in and sort of first or second seed out of your conference. That's a big deal. And when you look at the Spurs, as you mentioned, obviously Tim Duncan is a driving force behind that. Maybe the most interesting thing with the books around the late 70s and through to the 80s in the peak of Don Nelson's team it wasn't built around one sort of home run draft pick. It wasn't sort of one guy who 
I guess the easiest way of putting it was they didn't have a Kareem to tank for. There wasn't a guy where it was just, this is it, this is dead, sir, get this guy, and it all turns out. And really what they managed to do was execute, execute some incredible trades during that time and also navigate through some pretty dicey drafts where they were far from stacked and yet still say they managed to pick up... Uh, Sydney Moncrief with the fifth overall pick. I feel that makes this team a little different, even in the in the grander scheme of NBA history. What do you feel is the best way to describe this achievement? Or is it something that is near impossible for us to put into context because the books haven't come close to doing this in the time since? Hmm. I I think a little bit of the latter portion of what you said is true. It, it does going through you know Bucks history as we have in the last couple of weeks or last week and a half. I can't count. Um. Uh. It's still like obviously I'm a younger person, a younger Bucks fan than most people. Or not most people, but the, some people. So it does seem all foreign to me thinking of the Bucks and this, you know, consistently competitive team battling, you know, the best best teams at the time, all this stuff, and making shrewd <laughs> decisions that work in their favor. Uh, I'm used to not not happening. Uh, so I think it, that's a little bit of. That informs my view, I guess, uh, but that's obviously not everyone's opinion or point of view on this. But I would say it is, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know if I can think of the right word because consistency, consistency first comes to mind. But even then, like some of the moves like that Nelson during this tenure. Probably it's a, it's an organizational consistency more than just on the court, really, isn't it? It's, exactly. Yeah. It's it's more than at any other time in the franchise's history. There seemed to be a coherent direction and I guess a real understanding of what they were looking to do. And something that, that I guess has been spoken about a lot in the last 12 months or so, but at this time, the books didn't lose many trades. Mm-hmm. And the way in which they were able to bridge from one team to another was exceptional because... I feel it's unfair to describe this success as something that was born out of the last pieces of the championship team, because even though some of those guys were around towards the the time where it picked up and the start of the Don Nelson era, it was nearly the guys who came in after that. It was nearly the guys who just survived through the lull that followed the Kareem era, finally sort of worked their way up, and they picked up to a next level. And then, I mean, anyone who's familiar with Don Nelson, and even if you're not familiar with his era of books, he has been a coach in the NBA until much more recently. So he's a somewhat of a familiar face, even for younger NBA fans. If you have any sense of who he is or the way he talks, he's very much not a man for sentimentality. Mm-hmm. And... 
that paid off in a big, big way for his books teams because that's how in the middle of this run, really not too long after they've gone for their 60-win season, which is, I mean, their best season in the franchise history separated from the Kareem era. And they go through a season like that, and pretty soon after, he was able to say, okay, we need to move on. Junior Bridgman, Marcus Johnson, they get traded, and they bring Don't in... Don't forget Harvey Catchings. Don't forget Harvey Catchings. I wasn't forgetting him. I was just excluding him. But... Oh. Sorry, Harvey Catchings. But from there, you bring in guys like Terry Cummings, Ricky Pierce... It was crazy. Hodges in that deal as well. He was. He was the yes, third was. guy. Like that is a franchise changing deal. Except from the point the books were at, the franchise didn't need changing. It's just an example of how you always come to a point where things are in danger of getting stale, even as you're a really good team. And often we see it in the league today. It could be the coach that goes, or the players go and it's hard to maintain that same standard larry bird is nodding vigorously <laughs> with everything that you're saying right now that's I a different issue right it's a different issue but if you were to look at just down a list of the book's record season on season throughout that period of time you wouldn't expect that there was major overhauls of personnel in the middle of that mm-hmm even though there was obviously, say, Sidney Moncrief was close to an ever-present throughout. He was drafted in the early stages of it. Paul Pressey is close to... Paul Pressey is close to. Outside of that, though, you've got guys who come and go. As I mentioned, Junior Bridgman, Marcus Johnson, Bob Lanier, Brian Winters. Brian Winters. Pierce Hodges. You've sort of a pretty steady cast of really high caliber NBA players. And they sort of revolving doors, but there was always enough of them there at one time. That to me, for as great as these players were, and they, they had really special teams in that time, it makes me lean towards giving. I guess the biggest share of the credit to Don Nelson. Do you think that's fair or? Um, hmm. I mean, I don't know. That's tough because obviously some of the names that we have thrown out there right now, uh, they're, Pretty good players historically. I mean, Sidney Moncrief, you know, he just his career alone before knee injuries started, you know, piling up and making an impact on his career or cutting his career short, I should say. You know, Marcus Johnson at his peak before he got traded. Like, I mean, there's sure, I mean, I would say it's like a 50 50 thing. I know that sounds it's very close. I lean a little bit more in his favor. When I say he deserves the, the difference might be because of the trade of that trade, because that is such a big shakeup. And arguably, I mean, there are certain numbers that you can look at. Like if you look at those teams, they played even 
I mean, it didn't necessarily mean 60 wins or more than that, but they had better like personnel and offensive defenses at that time after that trade. Yeah, like I mean, That's, sorry, but Nelson first became you. known for his defense. Yes, and it's it's funny now when you hear like Nelly Ball or you hear about the stuff. It often comes up in relation to like the Warriors today. Yeah, TMC. Yeah, the basically the Warriors in general, but an yeah. idea of multiple playmakers, positionless basketball, things like that. And that did come later with the book specifically. I mean, that's really where he refined those ideas that I want to say he himself credits to a lot of Red Auerbach had done in his time playing under him with the Celtics. But it was defense first. And early on, the team's personnel was sort of sort of leaning in that direction. That Obviously, guys like Marcus Johnson did mean they had exceptional offensive players too. But as time went on, not only did he keep the team playing at such a consistent level, but he did sort of round out and even out that balance. And they were probably just a better team overall. Maybe it, it doesn't... Obviously, they didn't reach 60 wins again, but the sustained period of consistency came after a lot of those changes started to take effect. Mm -hmm. And the only other reason why I say, well, maybe does he not deserve the lion's share of credit for it would be, all you have to do is look at Don Nelson coaches the team in 86, 87, 50 wins, 32 losses. Del Harris, longtime assistant, completely sort of embedded in Don Nelson's philosophies and the culture that was there. And a good coach by anyone's measure, really. He was a solid MVP And no, coach. no, like hardly any changes. No real changes. And they drop to 42 and 40 almost a 500 team although they bounced back from there were 49 wins the next year I, I guess the key in that is okay the personnel were getting older that's fair but the days of 50 wins were gone and mm -hmm. pretty close to never to return again as we've seen in the time since <laughs> like it, it does speak volumes of nelson the coach and then of course he did go on to be a great success elsewhere he never really topped what he did with the books in terms of longevity and consistency but he made a big impact really wherever he went mm -hmm. and the same features sort of carry true for example he really was a genius when it came to personnel that goes all the way through to the mavericks where a lot of book signs would love to talk about how they traded away dirk Nowitzki. They didn't really. That deal only sort of came out the way it was because yeah. Don Nelson wanted Dirk Nowitzki so bad that he was he was sort of forcing the trades in the background in Dallas. And it just, it wasn't that the books were picking Dirk. Don Nelson really wanted him, so he traded with the books and he was picking Dirk using their selection. Yeah. Um, Steve Nash as well. I mean, Nash was no, he was no gimme, but he turned in to one of the very best point guards ever to play the game. I just find Nelson, he's another, I guess we last week or 
our main characters as such if you want to put it that way were the owners pavilon and fishman fishman yeah i nearly forgot marvin's surname there but this week i feel it's most definitely don nelson yes yeah first of all is there any question over whether he's the greatest coach in franchise history does larry cell still hang on to that because of winning a championship and because he was taking a team that was not a team one year and three years later were the champions i would probably lean nelson personally i know costello obviously championship the high mark of the franchise at this point uh that gives him you know credibility and makes him a you know one of the most important figures in bucks history but i i would just think i think nelson the fact that like we have said before the fact that there has been he made his like approval or stamp on the team whether it was personnel changes or just how the team played the defined style all that stuff i feel like that was that's more um i don't know i just i feel like that kind of boosts his case to me a little bit more than costello plus two i mean not to dismiss anything that Larry Costello did during his time in Milwaukee as a coach, but it also helps that you have Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Oscar Robinson leading the offense or leading the, you know, on the floor, the group on the floor, Bobby, Bob Dandridge, you know, all these, that team was just so defined that it felt like, even though he, I'm sure, obviously he was a great coach, he had great years and all that stuff. That kind of gets, uh the spotlight more than what he was able to do uh or what his stamp of approval was on that team really what did you say i I think there's a kareem asterisk beside beside everything in that era which is sort of it's unfair because it is the high point for the franchise but at the same time if a coin falls a different way that just doesn't come about. Mm-hmm. It sounds completely ridiculous, but that period in the book's history is really that simple. I guess the other part of that too is, I just feel like Nelson was more hands-on. Yes. He was involved in every little detail. Um, personnel was very much his call. He was very close with the owner at the time, Jim Fitzgerald. So much so that then when Fitzgerald sold the books and went on to become the Warriors, the Warriors owner, not so long after, Don Nelson followed. In sort of researches, and I did this last year as well, um, around the time where we did some history pieces and Nelson in particular sort of just hooked me in. I was particularly interested in 
his coaching philosophies, the way he spoke about coaching, and then just him generally as a person. But it's hard to read anything from Don Nelson and not just have one or two quotes jump out at you that you feel just like instantly explain why that team was such a success, why in 10 out of 11 seasons Don Nelson's books made the playoffs. Uh, A couple of examples. There's a piece from Milwaukee Journal Sentinel from, I want to say it was just a day or two before Nelson was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. And it starts out telling this story about basically the books are on the road. Um, I think in Dallas, they have an off day. And as they're collecting their luggage at the baggage carousel at Dallas airport, Don Nelson said, it's such a lovely day outside. Why don't we go and practice at a local playground? All the, the books start looking at each other thinking, particularly the likes of Lanier and Lanier at that stage, I guess, getting on in age. Sidney Moncrief always played with knee troubles, thinking the last thing they need is to go and play on these sort of hard courts. Mm-hmm. And of course, it never happened. Nelson never planned on it. But his explanation for it was, you've got to keep them wondering if you aren't just a little bit crazy. <sighs> which I felt was just like, it's just perfect for a books coach. I mean, in any era, I think of, of all franchises, <laughs> the books need a coach that will keep his players wondering if maybe he just is a little bit crazy. Then the, the other great detail when it comes to Nelson is, I've always found it really interesting that in anything you find, whether it's from a, around that time or him speaking in hindsight since he never really wanted to be a coach at least when he first became a coach he had sort of meticulously planned out his route to becoming a head coach in the nba and he saw many more years of working as an assistant before reaching that point um, he did, around the time, once again, that he went to the Basketball Hall of Fame, he did an interview with Mark, Mark Stein of ESPN. And he explained to him about the books job and becoming head coach in Milwaukee. I turned the job down three times, but Fitz made me do it. Larry Costello resigned suddenly, but I just wasn't ready to be a head coach. I was 36 years old. I wanted to coach two or three years with Larry and then Jack Ramsey is the guy I really wanted to work under. I thought after six or seven years, I'd know enough to be a head coach. That was my plan. But the third time Fitz said, just try it out. We'll just have a handshake deal. So just try it out and we'll move on after a year if you don't like it. We had a game in two days. They had to get somebody to stand in there. So that's what <laughs> we did. We tried it for a year. So first of all, the idea that this golden age of books basketball comes about two days before they had a game on a handshake agreement and for what it's worth Fitz as Don Nelson likes to call him and Nelson had a handshake agreement basically throughout their entire working relationship together Um, throughout his time with the books 
there are a lot of reports that say Don Nelson never had an actual contract. Um, I can't remember the name. The, the vice president of basketball, the books around that time, there's a quote from him saying, eventually their handshake agreement did sort of make its way onto paper. Um, but it seems like it was very loose ultra at that time. And they had a similar agreement then in Golden State. And that probably speaks a lot for who Don Nelson was. Loyalty being a big factor in that. Which once again makes it so interesting that he was prepared to cut ties with guys and move on when the time was right. Um, Always very popular with the players. Was a good but far from a great player with the Celtics. I mean, NBA champion as a Celtic but far from a star name on sort of talent-packed Celtics teams. With Nelson then, moving into the small ball side of things, which, as we mentioned, came later. This is talked about so often, and of course it's become a mythical thing, and now that we see the success the Warriors have had with it, and I guess other teams on a lesser scale following behind... The idea small poll is sort of overanalyzed and picked apart. But Nelson himself always saw it as something really, really simple. And there's probably no case where that comes out clearer than it does with his books teams. He wrote a piece for the Players' Tribune. It was last year, once again, with the Warriors, all the talk of Nelly Ball. He wrote a piece for Players' Tribune where... He said, people used to question me, ask, why would I always go small? And I would always give them the same answer. You do what you got to do to win, so you put your best players out there. And that's exactly how his books team shaped up. They were very far from being orthodox at the time, even in today's NBA. The way those books team shaped up would be pretty weird. Mm -hmm. I mean... A lot of the time, you'd have Sidney Moncrief at the point, where really he was a more natural shooting guard. You'd have, say, Paul Pressey at the two, when he was probably a more natural small forward. And then you'd have other guys who would be capable of playmaking in different sort of variations of those teams, whether that be Marcus Johnson or even Junior Bridgman to an extent. There were a lot of guys who were comfortable with the ball in their hands around that period. Marcus Johnson sort of famously claims the term point forward was coined to describe him. And that was how Don Nelson explained the position that he wanted him to play. Um, it's often, I want to say more often attributed to Paul Pressey, but I know in books broadcast a few times last year, Marcus mentioned this. Um, I interviewed him last summer and I asked him specifically about it and about the claims that it was Paul Pressey and he was very adamant. No, it was about me. You can ask Junior Bridgman. He will verify that it was first coined for me. Either way, 
sort of incredibly relevant when we in what way do this books history podcast in 2016 with the team shaped as it is and the future set out in a specific direction something that doesn't get mentioned a whole lot is not only has this kind of been done before but it's been done by the books this whole team should really be the template for what the books are looking to do yes obviously at some point the whole winning trades thing has to has to sort of yeah, that, that trend's gonna reverse <laughs> that's a that's maybe a missing ingredient we have at the moment but otherwise if you look at a team with multiple guys who can play make that's obviously Yanis. it's obviously middleton you could say jabari too and then take your pick you're with those guys you're going to have a point guard on the floor whether that's Matthew Davidova or Michael Carter Williams multiple creators yeah Tyler Ennis just to keep you happy thank you so next year when the books play a lot of the time they're going to have four playmakers in the center and none of the centers are playmakers so we don't have to worry about that (laughs) On top of that, we've had so much about the non-shooting team. Obviously, the NBA has changed dramatically in the time since. The three-point shot was still something of a novelty at this time. But in drawing the comparison with the multiple playmakers, I thought, hmm, I wonder just how that team was in terms of shooting, considering they were so dominant for so long. And the answer was they were pretty bad. Um, I mean, probably the kindest way of describing it would be middle of the road. But once again, you have this idea of multiple playmakers. Not a lot of shooting, but they got by. Um, Obviously, a big difference was, say, for example, if we take... If we take 1981, 80-81 season, the Bucs won 59 games. The San Diego Clippers led the league in three-point attempts that season with 407, which was 158 attempts, more than the second-place Cavaliers. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, the Clippers were really chucking. How many... Sorry to... um... Totally going to disrupt it. But how many three-point attempts did the Bucks have last year? Like 409 is the answer. Oh, my God. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, the Bucks are like a team straight out of the 80s is basically what we're saying here. Um, But, yeah, yeah, if if we transported the 2015-16 Bucks into 1981, they would have been the league leader in three-point attempts and percentage for that matter. The Clippers, I mean... Congratulations. We, we can't make fun of the Clippers for taking all those shots because they led the league in three-point percentage by a long way as well. Um, 32.4% used to be good enough to lead the league in three-point percentage back in the day. That's Brandon Jennings. 
Yeah. He, I mean, he would have been a star in the 80s. Yeah. At that time, though, that very same season, the Bucks had 131 three-point attempts and shot 22.9% from three-point range. Not very good at all. Um, is there something that can be taken from this? And this is sort of treading back on stuff we discussed last year and maybe didn't go down very well at the time. But if the books have multiple playmakers and they focus on maximizing what they get out of them and maximizing the ways in which they can make plays for themselves and for others. Is there a way that they could negate the, I guess the, the obvious three point deficiency they have much like the books of the eighties did with their group? Uh, yes. I think there is a way, but I mean, obviously they're talking about this unorthodox style at the time that's becoming, you know, in vogue now or even the norm uh, now. Um, the Bucks are still, they're obviously with their shooting deficiencies, they're, they have to try to get it or become a successful team through a different method than most other teams are using. Uh, you know, obviously they don't have the greatest shooting, or I just said this, <laughs> they don't have the greatest shooting, but they, I think there is a way to do it. I mean, to think of like teams that, maybe say like a team like the Heat, but they're kind of, a, I don't know. It's kind of tough to think of an example, like something. I feel like the, the Heat are a solid example, as in, to get that group over the edge, they really had to. They really had to go and get some guns for hire. Are you talking about uh, like big three heat or this past year's? I, I was talking about big tree heat. Oh, I, I actually I see now where either would apply. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, what I thought you meant was with the big tree heat, where you have like. LeBron never being the greatest three-point shooters. Likewise for Dwayne Wade. Bosch, good, definitely above average. He was average, starting to get really good. But you don't really want him out there, particularly at that point. It's not today's NBA just yet. You weren't saying mm-hmm. to your center, as he often was in those lineups, go out and stand behind the three-point line. Um, and they had to go and get the likes of Ray Allen, Mike Miller, Shane yeah, James, him, James Jones was there James as Jones. well. But Six-time they, NBA champion. It's completely insane. But they had to assemble. Did I say six time? You did, which is wrong. But we'll That's... let we'll let it slide. No one would really know the difference because everyone can just. You could say ten time, people would be like, "Yeah, that that James Jones has way too many titles." <laughs> Specifics don't matter. He already has way too many. <laughs> it's right like Michael Trump. Sorry. Six straight finals appearances. There we go. That's what I was trying to say. Oh, I mean that's here, here we are talking about our 
quaint little seven straight 50 win seasons. And just to put perspective on it all, James Jones went to six straight finals. He's a man of excellence. I'm, uh, do we continue with the podcast after that revelation that James Jones has comfortably usurped the whole history of the Milwaukee Bucks? Yeah, no. <laughs> I feel like it would have been dramatic to just wrap up there and say, you know, we can't do it. <laughs> we just scrap it. Like, oh, yeah, we, we've had a few <laughs> <feel> like this. <laughs> Back to comparing current books and 80s books. The similarities where we talk about Nelly Ball in today's NBA, that's fine, and the small ball side of it is prevalent. There aren't a whole host of teams, though, running play from players who aren't naturally point guards. It's only if you have a LeBron, a Paul George... The teams had to do that. Carmelo. I mean, I mean, that's not the wisest, but yeah, occasionally. Well, you do. To, I mean, I mean, okay, it is, it is wise considering the other options that the Knicks have had to give the ball to for a lot of his time there. That's true. But basically, where I'm going with this is, it's lining up in a very sort of. It's a very neat comparison. Obviously, with the the big difference between the two at the moment being that Don Nelson's team went on to have seven straight 50-win seasons. Is it a mistake on the book's part to play in a style that's so reminiscent of something that really was revolutionary in the 80s? Or is it that the league has moved so far away from that that it can be just as innovative now as it was for Nelson's team in the 80s. I would probably say the latter. Um, And that's a quote to Don Nelson. But the formula that the Bucks have discovered and are going to try to use for their future, you know, giving Giannis playmaking duties, filling in from there with Chris... Jabari, and then obviously, you know, picking up guys like Delhi, forming this new kind of weird style, I guess, unorthodox, use that word again. I, I, I think that's just the, it's not trying to be like innovative, it's just putting their best foot forward. I mean, we saw, I mean, we could say, look at what we thought uh, coming into last year, how things of work on offense where, you know, in theory, you could have five capable playmakers and that did not work. There was not even five. There's maybe three, two, two. two one, last off. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's just, it's more of a, of a way of just trying to get the best out of your team than doing something that's a little different or uh, counter to what's going on. And plus, too, we have to remember, I, I think the biggest difference in how teams or offenses or 
model these days is just the fact that the point guard position is so good right now. I mean, it's that's the biggest I think change into what how teams are because I feel like back then you think of like those greatest greater or better teams. Some of those besides like Magic and trying to think of who else maybe like uh, I'm probably gonna forget someone. Um, uh, not a De- Dennis Johnson wasn't really. I don't know. I those those were those teams were modeled because of having obviously great players, but just it felt like more of those how teams were built. Obviously, big men were built, but it was also with wings, like having guys like Larry Bird, Dr. J. Uh, again, I'm probably going to be missing a few more, but I felt like, or I feel like, obviously the the way the how many point guards there. Getting better and better, and just the fact that there are multiple point guards that don't make all-star teams or all NBA teams. Those guys that missed out on how uh, you know getting those accolades now, those guys would be really good at that stage, and maybe even probably the better point guards at that time. I mean, I don't. Know. I just feel like the position of point guard has gotten so good that it's obviously changed how offenses are created or teams are built. Well, a big part of that was, whether it was completely unintentional or not, at the time, Don Nelson in going bigger with his point guards, even if, say, Pressy wasn't really a point guard, if Marcus Johnson wasn't, if Moncrief wasn't, even though he was playing specifically the position for large periods of time, there was a real benefit to doing that at the time, and that has changed since, and that's because of the real changes with hand checking. Yeah, and that has been something which gives an advantage to say, say to Chris Pauls, someone who is shorter in stature, in the old NBA where Pauls may be a tricky example because he's one of the most intelligent players we have in the league he would still find a way to get it done. Also, because Chris Paul is not afraid of contact. I mean, he would not shy away from it. But at the same time, the game wasn't tooled towards that kind of player in the same way. Yeah. Um, more so Stephen Curry, particularly. Mm. I mean, that's that's probably the most glaring example of someone who the game is pretty much tailor-made for now where back at this time, it wouldn't have been quite as hospitable. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely a sense of that as well in terms of how that, that shape, that structure suited a team in the late 70s, early 80s. Now it's something different. And I guess where the books come, it'll be interesting to see just how cyclical the NBA really is. Yes. Because if they do make it work in the way that we're all describing, and the way that is described is something revolutionary, which is really, in all honesty, it's a retread. And it would just be interesting to see how that that comes about again. And really, I mean, basketball isn't that complicated. We can't pretend it's something it isn't. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that eventually 
you're gonna have some philosophies that overlap to a point where the key part of team x's game plan was something that was solved in the past by doing this and by changing this direction the league can get an advantage on what was now the norm i think that is very much the nature of the nba as opposed to a lot of other sports leagues moving on from nelson and you might just i guess to wrap up on him and um, we'll look into some of the seasons in a little bit more detail but to wrap up on him if you're wondering oh, why did don nelson resign you said 50 win season this was last year everything was still going well 10 out of 11 years in the playoffs what what happened herb cole is the answer um the best point is where Don Nelson and Jim Fitzgerald were super close to the extent where they had that handshake agreement from the coach of the team. The relationship was not so good between Mr. Nelson and Senator Cole. Um, a quote from Nelson at the time was, there has been a breaking down of my credibility in Herb Cole's mind ever since he bought the team. One little thing after another, that's what makes it hard for me to continue. Cole said he had not spoken with Nelson concerning his intention to resign and would have no comment until he received notification. Nelson said he no longer has anything to say to Cole and will not meet him as planned for next week. The differences between Nelson and Cole surfaced during the book's first round playoff series against the 76ers. Since then, Nelson has voiced his and I quote, philosophical differences, unquote, with the owner. It's a very sort of sour note for things to end on with Don Nelson, really. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I'm talking about that as if it's happened now, and this is not something new. But when you consider... Don Nelson went on to continue coaching, coaching successfully in the NBA through to basically close to 2010. I think 2009, 2010 was his final season coaching. Yep. I wouldn't expect him to have been books coach you all that time because that would have been an incredible, incredibly long tenure as coach. But who knows if he had been around five years longer because as we'll talk about in a future podcast, but the period after he left led into maybe the most barren period in books history mm. where they really, <laughs> they really <laughs> struggled to find a way out of the darkness is the best way of putting it. Um, <sighs> he, when good players came along, it just didn't quite, it didn't quite work and you just you've got to think the talent that came into the nba and some of those mid-90s drafts if don nelson was around five or six years longer what would he have done to get x player here obviously a little bit later but dirk is a name that comes to mind someone he really wanted someone he brought in more than just from a coaching standpoint where he was one of the best coaches the league has ever seen but just from a general basketball mind and an eye for talent 
if the Bucks got a handpicked a coach for the sort of five or six years after Don Nelson left, it probably would have been Don Nelson. So it's a pity that those philosophical differences with Herb Cole brought an end to the Don, the Don Nelson era in Milwaukee. Anything to say on that, Jordan? No. <laughs> so disappointing to me. Well, I will say, and I'm not... I, I was never invested in this era like Jordan and probably all of you listening. Um, yeah, I, I basically only covered the team in the current ownership's tenure. Yeah. So... I was always watching Herb Cole's teams from afar. I think it's fair. His legacy is great for what he did for the franchise. But it's very clear that the best of Herb Cole's books decisions came off the court and away from the basketball side of things. Where when it came to basketball, influence was not quite as positive. I'm not being unfair in saying that, am I? I think a lot of people would agree. I have a few specific. One example that that comes to mind is uh, the quote from, I wrote a piece on around the time Kobe retired. Um, A quote from Jonathan Abrams, currently a Bleacher Report, former Grant Lunder's book. Is that from Prep to Pro? Uh, Boys Among Men. That's it. And the the subtitle is like From Prep to Pro. Yeah. Uh, From Boys Among Men, um, a quote from Mike Dunleavy, then book's head coach, of wanting to take Kobe Bryant. But Kobe wasn't going to work out for the books. And Herb Gull said, if he's not going to work out for us, we're not going to pick him. Simple as that, because because Kobe at the time was staying with Mike Dunleavy. Mike Dunleavy knew his father well, so whatever. That's just that's just one other example that comes into my mind. Where, with hindsight and having been completely detached from that at the time, I can now look at it and say, why why did it, why was he really that involved in that anyway? Was there not the basketball people to make the basketball decisions? Whatever. It's it's one of the most interesting details with the books throughout their history. When this is not rocket science, but it probably gets overlooked because our instinct is to dive into the players and the styles of play that you see from teams. But when the books were well run, coincidentally, the results tended to follow. <laughs> when there was like clear direction from the top down, things tend to turn out pretty well. And I guess that's what another. What are you getting at, Adam? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not getting it. I'm, I'm joking. There's no. There's no thinly veiled jibes here. I'm being very clear and direct about this. I'm. I'm hoping. <laughs> I feel at least from the ownership, that's where we are right now. So 
let's hope that that's another trend they can follow where strong ownership strong this well strong ownership wasn't always good as i just touched on we'll see if it's the right kind of strong ownership but strong decisions at the top have helped the books in the past yes they've also shot them in the foot having spoken about this team that had a 60 win season multiple 50 win seasons once again for those who aren't as well versed in the highs and lows and lows of being a books fan they're probably asking right now why why is this team so good why are we talking about this team being so good when they didn't win a championship they might be asking did, did, did this team ever get to an nba finals no and that's the answer no they didn't of course not there's only two books teams to get to the finals 71 when they were champions 74 when they lost to the celtics What the Bucks did do is they got to three conference finals. And for any of you with those questions on, well, what was what was this Bucks team doing? I mean, what they did in those three conference finals, it's not going to leave you any more convinced. They reached the conference finals in 83, where they lost 4-1 to the 76ers. Conference finals in 84, where they lost 4-1 to the Celtics. And the conference finals in 86 where they lost 4 0 to the Celtics. We can say that uh, we lost the eventual champions. So On all three occasions. Yeah. He beat me to it. Did the Bucks blow chances to win, or is it just incredibly unfortunate that I guess this team that was sort of without one real star, this. This team of stars rather than a team driven by a superstar, that they happened to come along in this era where the Celtics were, if not at their most dominant ever, they were about as close as they got to, say, their peaks of the early days of the NBA. Likewise for a team like the Sixers, the other team who beat them in a conference finals, they've never really seen the heights of what they had at that time again. Is it misfortune or is it missed opportunity? I would leave misfortune. I think, you know, we talk about teams like uh, uh, Thunder, probably now you can consider the Thunder in this kind of coming along at the wrong time. Uh, Suns in the 2000s, better part of the 2000s. Or... I think Suns is probably probably a better example again because obviously the Thunder have had injuries yeah, that's true. As much as just coming along at the wrong time. But yeah, Suns, okay, there were injuries there too, but they had full healthy seasons where it still just didn't all come together for them. Yeah, Pacers maybe in the 90s, because they didn't crack the finals until after the Bulls. I mean, P- Pacers and the Knicks in the 90s, really. Knicks, yeah. As just really talented teams that just couldn't get there. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say it's more coming, you know, <laughs> I mean, those teams at the time, like you said, Celtics are one of the greatest teams of all time at that point, especially 1986. Even Sixers, you know, Moses Malone, Dr. J, uh, even, I mean, they didn't have, like, 
I think they had other really good players, but they're also kind of like more role players. Like, I want to say like David Dawkins, Mo Cheeks, kind of. Uh, they didn't have Dawkins, but they had Andrew Tony was actually. Oh, oh Andrew Tony, yeah. Tony was the leading point scorer in yeah. that series. Uh, Mo Cheeks. Below that, there was a drop, but I mean, their four leading guys averaged between 16 to 23 points per game in that series between them. So having four guys who could score at that level immediately made things difficult. I mean, that was sort of the peak of Moses Malone. Dr. J was on the was really past his prime. A lot of his prime, maybe we'll talk specifically on him in a minute, um, but was spent in the ABA. Mm-hmm. But still, he was Dr. J. And couple him with a Moses Malone who was averaging like once again that series he averaged 22 and 14 with 2.2 blocks per game pretty hard to overcome that and we'll start out we'll run through the three of them but that 83 Eastern Conference Finals the funny thing is 4-1 doesn't sound close the Bucks lost game one by two points. They lost game two by six points. They lost game three by eight points. One game four by six points. And game five was the only one to get past double digits. It was only a 12-point game even at that. I mean, that's particularly those first two games in Philadelphia, two points and six points. That's one break your way in the first one, really. Two breaks your way in the second. And all of a sudden, they could have been up 2-0, heading back to Milwaukee. It's close. It's much closer than than 4-1 makes it sound. Yeah. Um, Just a pretty pretty special Sixers team. Mm -hmm. I mean, the books gave as good as they... I mean... Really put it up to the Sixers in that series. You had like Marcus Johnson in that series averaged 21.4 points, 7.8 rebounds, 4.4 assists, 1.2 steals. Really impressive. Junior Bridgman 17.8, 5.2, 3.2. Creef with 15.4, 6.8, 3.4, 2.6. Bob Lanier still at 34 years of old, making a big impact center it was maybe that one was a little bit too early for say Paul Pressey only played 84 minutes total in that series only started two of the five games his numbers by his standards were really pedestrian as it is one of those things where maybe because the books were juggling these two different eras and they managed to bridge it for consistency, but if there was just a little bit more of an overlap, they might have been as consistent for as long, but they could have had this sweet spot where they could have won one or two titles. Very much like the books had the decade prior. Mm. Before we move off from that series... This is technically 70s books. 
we didn't talk about it last week and the time since you've written about it. I have. Do you want to enlighten the good people about the book's near miss with the doctor, Julius Irving? I can and I will. Um, uh, where do I start? Where do I start? Well, at the beginning, or... at the beginning. Well, there once was a man. No, uh, it was Bucks drafted or Julius Irving, nineteen seventy-two, coming off of. Uh, oh, was they lost to the Lakers in the conference finals? Want to say that might have been the year that the Lakers won. Uh, that sounds Going, right. Okay. Um, and at the time, Dr. J was playing in the ABA, uh, played for the Virginia Squires. Play, he was already, you know, Dr. J at that point was doing Dr. J things, I guess. Um, and so when they took him at uh, 12th overall pick, or with the 12th overall pick, uh, they did not know. Apparently, Dr. J signed a contract with the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, actually, I think a day or two before the draft. Which my, is my, my Atlanta Hawks. Your Atlanta Hawks. I'm actually obliged to interrupt any time. The Hawks are <laughs> So Adam McGee, he did this all thing. I don't know. Uh, so, yeah, they, he said it, which is odd because – both the NBA season and ABA season were going on. The draft is going on through the playoffs, which is I still can't get my mind wrapped around that because it's it sounds awful. <laughs> like that's, I don't know, it sounds terrible planning. But in the meantime, Dr. J signs the contract with the Hawks, uh, and it leaks out. I, I believe the Atlanta Journal breaks wind of it. Breaks wind of it. <laughs> Uh, breaks news of it, word of it. That was a terrible word to use after it breaks. Um, so then, obviously, the video war, this huge war ensues where obviously the Bucks and Hawks are trying to figure out the situation. Meanwhile, Dr. J is suing the Virginia Squires and the ABA. And to, to make it clear, why, because people are probably going, why did. Why did the Hawks sign him? What was oh, why yeah. was that even in play? The Hawks' stance on it was he's not coming from college. He's playing the ABA. He's a professional. So one key I forgot to include this one key detail. Apparently, at the time, the draft or teams did not draft underclassmen. So the first year that Dr. J was in the ABA. He would have been a senior at University of uh, Massachusetts, so that's why he was drafted in '72. Whereas, since he made his, you know, started his professional career a year before, that's why he wasn't drafted by NBA teams. Because obviously, you think an NBA team would take a flyer at him at uh, in '71. He basically but, did it. He did a Brandon Jennings, is what you're saying. Yes, Brandon Jennings or a PJ Harrison, Emmanuel Moody. Uh, Emmanuel Muria, yeah. Uh, I think there's actually a prospect this year that's doing that right now. Uh, Terrence Ferguson, uh, just to throw that out there. Anyway, 
So he decides, or the reason why he signed to the Hawks in the first place was he uh, contends, and it was it's kind of murky the details, but he contends that his agent that signed the con- or helped you know draw the contract for him with the, the Squires worked on behalf of the the team and the ABA itself, and at the time all these players that the ABA were drawing were making like millions of dollars, which was obviously pretty crazy at the time. And he was only making six figures, I want to say like a hundred thousand dollars. Something like that. So this is you know growing uh just disenchanting Dr. J at the time. So the, the ABA weren't like that sort of we'll say dodgy dealings. Yes, any of the NBA we're, too, we're not, but particularly because if any of you who listened last week might remember, um, All the, right. the quotes from Wes Pavillon in regard to when the books were looking like they were going to be in position to draft Kareem, but the ABA were collectively as a league going to pool their money together to bring Kareem to the ABA and say, You can play for any one of our teams, take your pick. So this idea of them not necessarily in fully legitimate ways going out of their way to try and hoard talent or steal it away from the NBA wasn't particularly uncommon at the time. Yeah. Um, where was I? What am I thinking? Oh, okay. So, so that's, as that's happening. Uh, so there's, it's, there's a lot of like place in the air for like him to like, actually play in the NBA. He's played spinning like a Harlem Globetrotter. Like you have to play that music. I don't know the song name. I think we all know the music. You don't need to know the yeah. name. Someone's whistling in uh, Poughkeepsie right now. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, uh, why am I, where was I going with this? Sue's ABA. Why am I just wrote this like two days ago? This is why I host the podcast, people. Yeah. Damn it. That's a, that's a, see, that's the casual ripping that I was bringing up. I promised it would return later. Yeah. Um, he sues the ABA. Sues the ABA. In the meantime, there was like a high court judge. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Oh, my God. I mean, he wrote this. I, I only read it. I mean, come yeah. on. Um, he declares that the Hawks, their grounds for bringing in Irving was, uh, valid and, uh, Dr. J's contract was, or the way that it was, you know, spelled out or drawn out or facilitated or whatever, um, that was to be terminated, voided, voided his contract and all that stuff. So technically he was out of the contract at that point, I guess. This was the contract with the Virginia Squires. Virginia Squires, yes. So then Dr. J starts playing, he starts participating in training camp with the Hawks, uh, eventually playing exhibition games. But at the same time as this is going on, the, uh, the commissioner at the time, Walter Kennedy, basically kind of let both the Hawks and the Bucks try to figure out uh, some form of compensation for the Bucks to 
give Irving's rights to the Hawks and actually play for him in the NBA. Uh, I couldn't find a newspaper like article or mentioning this, but Dr. J, the reason why I included the following is because Dr. J said it after the ruling that uh, he could play with the Hawks. He said that the Bucks asked for Pistol Pete, Lou Hudson, uh, draft another, picks, draft picks, yes, draft picks, and, and cash considerations. Milwaukee Bucks fan favorite cash yes. considerations. It, it, it uh, starts from there. This is like when we're talking about these eras where the Bucks won trades. I mean. That would have been... That's a king's ransom. Even as good oh, as, like, Dr. Particularly, think of the team at that time. Think of the Bucks players, and you're adding Lou Hudson and Pistol Pete. That, I'm not even... I don't even know what the draft picks could have been. <laughs> or cast considerations. We don't know how he could, how good he could be. You know. But yeah. you're adding to... Oscar Robertson's still there. Kareem's still there. I mean, would Kareem really want to leave? We talked about the other <laughs> the other elements of this last week, but there's so many different things that sort of create this would Kareem really have wanted to leave question. But forget about Dr. J. If Even if they had Pistol P and Pistol Luke P. Hudson, yeah. they are two of the all-time greatest Hawks. Yes. That would yes. be one hell of a haul for any team. And okay, you'd lose out on Dr. J, but ultimately you'd go, okay, so we got draft rights for a player who could never play for us, and we turned that into Pistol Pete Lou Hudson picks and cash considerations. Saying that, I do understand why the Hawks didn't just uh Oh yeah. Didn't just agree to that deal. Yeah. That's sort of the purpose of getting Dr. J in the first place. Yeah. And I, I'm not including because uh, I'm trying to fast track the story and make it, you know, uh, dumb it down, simple thing. But the Hawks owner at the time, just his quotes that I could find are just like it was. I mean, him and Wayne Embry just kind of like this back and forth with each other. It's if this were ha- to happen today, it would have been. I mean, it would, people would be talking about it constantly. It'd be like basketball Twitter would just be. You know, going crazy because it's just, it's, I don't know, it's, it's so unheard of these days. Anyway, so from that point, there, like I said, Dr. J is playing with the team, all this stuff. But talks eventually broke down between the Hawks and Bucks, rightfully so, because of this enormous asking price. Um, and, uh, so then the NBA came in, intervened. They go to the board, uh, the next board of governors meeting, and take up who actually has the rights to Dr. J. And then it was from there. I want to say the vote was like fifteen to two. Interestingly enough, the Hawks and the other team that said no to the vote, the Golden State Warriors. Just a little nugget in there. Uh, they said, or the NBA obviously said. Bucks own Julius Irving's draft rights or NBA rights. Uh, and the Hawks obviously were mad. They decide to go with it. They, he plays a couple more preseason games, like rack of fines. 
The hardest well, that was, that was on his part as well, though, right? I mean, he basically yes, say, oh, yeah. He I'm was... not, I'm not leaving the Hawks. That was yeah. That's the one thing about this story is that even though I'll, I'll actually I'll wait until I sum it. Um, so <laughs> the Hawks start playing in a couple more preseason games, and then as those fines are getting the wreck at these fines, I don't know. This just makes me laugh. They turn around. And they sued the NBA for some ridiculous. I just, uh, I should have included the quote in the article because the quote was just like, I. It was basically just we feel it was. They felt like th- there was like this conspiracy towards trying to hand Dr. J to the Bucks because obviously at the time they were one of the best teams in the league, and the Hawks were still. I mean, they're a good team, but they putting Dr. J with them obviously would have been a Tough team to beat. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, so the fact that they just turned around and sued the NBA just makes it laugh for some dumb reason. So at that point, uh, the biggest like curveball out of left field, there's a judge in Brooklyn that decide, or reads through Dr. J's contract with the Squires and says, and in the contract, there's a like little addendum or attachment saying that if there's any salary disputes, it has to go through arbitration. So the fact that he even want that he wants to leave and all this stuff, it doesn't make it you can't do that because you have if you're unhappy with your pay, you have to re you know renegotiate your contract basically. So he rules that he can't even play for the Hawks at that point. He has to go back to the Squires, figure out all this contract situation. They eventually do. Obviously, uh, or the Bucks-Hawks dispute doesn't get solved until like two years later, three years later, uh, when Larry O'Brien takes over as commissioner. It was like one, like his first week, and he orders them. It's just a trophy, right? Just <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> Are you saying he's the trophy as the commissioner? Or? Yeah, I mean, that's what I always assumed. <laughs> he retired and then he just they, sits in the glass box all year round. I just had a funny visual of a trophy in a chair and as he's, yeah. That's stupid. Um, um, anyway, uh, then they figure out their uh, fines from there. Uh, it's like 100000 by the end in a couple draft picks or something like that. So even though the Bucks drafted... It got reduced, didn't it, by the way? You also added that to 50000 I think it was 100... I want to say it was 150000 to 100000 Oh, uh, okay. Something... One of those. Came around. Um, so even though Julius Irving was technically drafted by the Milwaukee Bucks, there was no real... I mean, he didn't show any initiative to even want to play there which is kind of odd considering but I, everybody has their own reasons uh so even though like i said even though he played or technically drafted by the bucks started his nba career i guess with the bucks in a way uh he was not even close to play with the bucks and uh but it what could have been maybe maybe he felt he wasn't culturally compatible with milwaukee maybe that was it Maybe I don't know. I, I don't know. If if you can put on some sort of impartial hat 
Who do you think? Well, I'm wearing. I was already wearing this. Oh, really? Okay. Well, <laughs> which which part did you feel was most hard done by in the whole? What part or what team? But, yeah. Well, yeah. Was it was it Doctor J? Was it the Squires, the Books, the Hawks? Well, I think eventually it probably would have been the Squires because. Actually, I would probably no, not eventually. I mean, they I got the them more time, so they were all right. Only a season, and they had a tr- they after they traded, they basically folded. I mean, they were in the ABA, so true. But I mean, when you have, I mean, yeah, that's true. Um, shout out to any of our listeners in Virginia, in Richmond, um, home of the spiders. That's the name of the talk about an unusual nickname. Richmond Spiders. That's I like that. That's good. I know. I like that too. I wonder why. Anyway, or I wonder why that's the. I kind of stop talking about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I would say the Squires because it's a little fishy why Dr. J wanted to leave in the first place. Do, do you think it was, is? I mean, it was the NBA was bigger at that time. Like. It was where Kareem was playing. It was where historically the best players had gone there. Yeah. I, well, yes, obviously. But uh, I um, I mean, the Hawks. Obviously, you can make an argument for the Hawks because they had to pay. I, I think it's the Hawks because they sort of. I, they were the I closest. Get, I don't. I, I don't feel. I, can see, I don't feel I can bad see, for the Bucks at all. Yeah, well, I can see the Bucks' point in drafting him, but I feel the Hawks' claim makes more sense. As in, well, hey, he's because it, maybe that's just looking at it from today's perspective, where yeah. we'd be like, if someone was playing overseas, okay, you do. You have younger guys who go and they go overseas and they come to draft, but then you have older guys who played overseas, and it's just like, yeah, we want that guy. We'll sign him. No. He's a he's a professional player. We're a professional team. He's unattached. No one owns his rights. Here's this contract. You like it? You're ours. You it's like I mean? a. It's like a, not even just that too. I mean, we saw we see with summer league players that aren't technically owned by those teams, or the, they don't have those rights owned by those teams. And see, like you know, well, Jonathan Simmons might not be a good example, but uh, I can't even think of one. Uh, maybe. Not Sean Kilpatrick. Anyway, just that that would be an example. Of just see a team kind of not poaching, but because those the team that he might play for during summer league or something like that, another team comes in, says we think you're good, we're going to give you a contract, all that stuff. I think that's perfectly fair. And another key detail with that that I felt like it's it's important to the story, but just not important to like how the Bucks side of all of this. There was. Multiple cases of team or players playing with ABA players or ABA teams, and eventually having you know having a dispute, they want to play in the NBA. I think almost always or all or if not all uh, players eventually played in the NBA and didn't play with their ABA team that they got drafted by or something like that. They so want Dr. to say like Spence, Spencer Dr. Hayward. Dr. J was the exception there, really, was he? Yeah, he was, I think, like, the first one. Like, Spencer Haywood was one. Uh, maybe Rick Barry could be wrong. 
couple others eventually, I think. But yeah, Dr. J was like the first one to kind of reverse that trend, but yeah. I mean, it's it's a weird thing, and for it's either as as we mentioned, there there was two ways where the books could have come out as big winners in that in that whole fiasco, and there was one way where they could come out losers, and that's what ultimately transpired, somewhat fittingly. But if he had a gun to the Hawks, and the Hawks had to sort of pay up for his rights. That would have done the books great if they had have been allowed to sign him and he had eventually gone to Milwaukee and they'd had her Dr. J. That would have been great. But instead, he came back to haunt them. Yes. So, somewhat fittingly, somewhat cruelly. I feel it's like fitting it in, a, in a books kind of way. Moving on from Dr. J, the 76ers, and... I don't know, should we make Jordan's like um Jordan's rambling corner of the podcast? Should we make that a regular thing? <laughs> oh. That could be my segment. A segment in the middle where it's like goes on for fifteen minutes I talk about the Richmond spiders. Sentences just roll from one into the next into the next. Yes. I I mean, congrats on working the Richmond spiders into it. I mean that's I I. I mean I'd be all I'd be all down for Milwaukee Spiders, Sheboygan Spiders. How about it? Ah, <laughs> uh, come on, no. come on. Moving on to nineteen eighty four. Ten years after the Celtics had defeated the Bucks in seven games in the NBA Finals. After the conferences had realigned and the books were now in the East rather than the West, they faced off again in the conference finals in 1984. This one wasn't close in the way that the Sixer series was close. Um, the Bucks lost game one by a margin of 23 points, game two by 15 points, game three by nine points. They won game four by nine points to stay alive, and they lost game five by seven points. To help you understand why the series went that way, the Celtics had six players score in double digits in that series. They had five players with five or more rebounds per game in that series. They had players such as Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, Dennis Johnson, and good friend of ours, the Win and Six podcast, the original, Gerald Henderson. I'm trying to think now, isn't it? Isn't it that Ger- the Gerald Hendersons are Jerome some, McKinley? Some, yeah, Henderson. some of the league's great con artists. <laughs> and what's funny is there's another Jerome Henderson that played for the Bucks eventually. Guess what? 
not related at all. I mean, if he was related, we know what he would have called himself. He called him Jerome. But this Jerome was an honest, decent fellow, so he stuck with his name. Um, also on that Celtics team, going on to win his one and only championship, former book, Quinn Buckner. Mm. That team was stacked. Yeah. Um, was Tony Archibald on that team? He was not. Oh. Hmm. But Larry Bird was, and in that series, he averaged 27.4 points, 10 rebounds, 6 assists, 2.4 steals. While shooting 50% from the field, 50% from tree, 89.8% from the free throw line. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. Um, I, I define it hard. I don't know how the books could really compete with that team. As good as the books were. Despite them shutting the Celtics out the year prior. Yeah. Feels like things have changed, though. Yes. Uh, an interesting name. Change. Someone we hadn't mentioned up until now, I want to say. Um, but the fourth leading scorer for the books in that series was one Mike Dunleavy. Ah. 14.2 points. Pretty good going for a senior. 14.2 points? Per game in the series, yeah. Wow. Congratulations. That was that was very sarcastic. No, very sarcastic. I I give sincere congratulations. I th- I'm not buying it. Moving um, on to eighty five, eighty six. The Bucks once again met the Celtics. We said, "Oh, this time, surely this time it went better." No, would be the answer to that. Um, yeah. They got swept in four games. <laughs> Game one, they lost by thirty two points. Oh. Game two, they lost by 11 points. Game three, first one back in Milwaukee, really all hung on this. Narrow four-point loss. And then lost by 13 points in game four. By that stage, many of the same sort of recurring characters for the Celtics... Um, Bird, McHale, Parrish, Ainge, Dennis Johnson. Also, though, Bill Walton. And... <laughs> Go on. I was, well, one of my favorite Bill Walton things, besides just his... Besides Bill Walton. Bill, besides Bill Walton. I've heard him introduce himself. I want to say that this is definitely on the starters, but it was also on the Jonah Carey podcast that he was on. He introduced himself. I wonder if he does this in real life. He said it. He introduced himself as I'm Bill with two L's. And I just, <laughs> that always, I don't know, I always carry that with me for some reason. I like that. Yeah, man, I, I want to meet Bill with one L. I want to meet that no, Bill. I've met that Bill. It's really? overwhelming. Wow. No. You should just stuck with that story. I mean, Another familiar name who was on the Celtics team. One Rick Carlo. Oh, yeah. The end of the bench on the Celtics team. Slick Rick. Slick Rick. Um, 
Yeah, so that's three conference finals the Bucks got to. They lost to eventual champions on each occasion. There's not even the slightest bit of doubt about it. If they were to get across the line, they missed their chance against the Sixers. Particularly considering that was a close series, and the Sixers then went on to sweep the Lakers in four games in the finals. Some of those games against the Sixers for the Bucks were so close. It was much closer than the 4-1 looked. Things had gone their way. That could be championship number two for the Bucks. Mm. It didn't. Before we move on from the 80s, we should probably do our best not to move on so quick because that means that next week is the 90s. Um, but I dress like I'm from the 90s. <laughs> I've been waiting an hour to say that. <laughs> Just trying to find the right time. That's actually, that is factual as well. Yes. Factual statement. Um, as Jordan wears his shiny book screen at the moment. Mm-hmm. Out of all of the players, all of the great players who played for the books in the 80s, if you were to narrow it down to three, who would you put down as the most important, the most influential figures in the team's success in that time? Uh, the three that come to mind. Sidney oh, uh, Moncrief, for obvious reasons, the most present, ever present. Uh, now it's going to get tougher. Paul Pressey, Paul Pressey. Uh, despite only being more of a key figure in 84, 80, like those 86 runs. Um, and last but not least, uh, Gary Brokaw. <laughs> That's a real Bucks player. I, no disrespect to Gary, but I was always thinking of Tom Brokaw. Just during Tom Brokaw. You don't know who Tom Brokaw is. He used to be a newsman. <laughs> uh, sorry, that was just a bad joke. Uh, for real, uh, Paul Bukowski. <laughs> I'm joking. Oh God. Uh, I would probably go Marcus Jackson. Okay, this is very boring. It's my trier the same. Yeah, it's hard. I, it's hard outside of that because they don't. They were, they had the most sustained periods within that time. Yes. Like I. Although he was at the end of his career, Bob Lanier was really important, but you can't really give it to him for that. Uh, Brian Winters had many great years with the books. Some of his better ones, some of his better ones did come at the early end of that, and even a little before everyone else kicked up into gear, though. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to say Winters' jersey was hanging from the rafters by '85. Which is insane. Completely blows my mind that he was retired like one year and they were like, what What are we waiting for? Let's get down to it. Brian Winters. And I'm not saying that to be unfair because Brian Winters' numbers for the books are really impressive. 
obviously mm-hmm. an important time in the franchise's history. Um, but it really is. I mean, if you look at how he played 11 years, maybe 10, eight, eight, I want to say with the book. Eight? Well, cause he had that one year with the, with the Lakers. He retired at 30. Eight seasons with the books. He's a regular Barry Sanders. That's a, but I mean, he, that's the thing. He hit the ground running. Like by the time they got to the '80s, he was well into decline. Mm-hmm. His best play came the no man's land of post Kareem, running up to when Donald's teams really hit their prime. Yeah, which is sort of weird that that that's what for me. I, I unfairly I always sort of. When I think of a weird books jersey retirement, he's the name that comes to mind for me just because I feel like he was in between the periods where the really good things happened. That's when his mm-hmm. best play came. Um, even though he was very, very good, undisputably good in that time. Um Junior Junior Bridgman is another one who very I mean, really great player. I don't eat quite had the importance of those other three. Do you mean Ulysses? That would be the Torch's real first name. Wow, that's a great nickname, by the way. I like the Torch. My favorite book's nickname, I think, belongs to Ricky Pierce. Are you familiar with Ricky Pierce's nickname? I don't think I saw that. What is it? Ricky Pierce, a.k.a. Big Paper Daddy. Big paper daddy. <laughs> I like that. Did you look up why? No. Why did I do that? I mean, it speaks for itself. Uh, <laughs> wait. What? Big paper daddy. We have to find this out. We've got down to the real importance. There's a shirt. Oh, wow. Really? Oh. It says this guy loves big paper dad. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think you could wear that. I don't know if that's no. a good idea. I know this is. I keep seeing big paper daddy. What is it? The origin. What? When the what? Did you see this other T-shirt? When the boogeyman goes to sleep, he checks the closet for big paper dad. <laughs> What's going on? That's insane. I, why do I feel like these aren't all Ricky Pierce references? I don't think so. But this complex article, uh, it starts with it saying, Big Paper Daddy put up starters points. Playing it sub- doesn't explain it. Doesn't explain it. That's why YMCA is so good that you hear the explanation of one of the weirdest nicknames ever, but we can't find the <laughs> boogie. With the boogie, I can't. I can't say it. When the boogie man goes to sleep, those eyes, those are very. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like that's that's an all-time great books nickname. The torches. I know that we to get back to Ulysses as you wanted to. Discuss the torch is a great nickname. Do you want to share with the listeners your your beef 
with Ulysses Bridgman? Well, it's not a beef. I think it's a beef. I don't think it's a beef. It's ironic because he owns a bunch of Wendy's restaurants. That's true. Believe, he does. I believe one of their commercials was Where's the Beef? So it all goes back. It's not Wendy's, really. Okay. I, I want to say that was. I know that Wendy's. campaign here, but I didn't know it was them. Yeah. When you say he owns a bunch of Wendy's, he owns like maybe a thousand. Yeah. A bunch, in my mind, is a thousand. And he, I don't, you know, he actually, because it was Wendy's and Chili's and he sold them all recently. Mm -hmm. For Coca-Cola? Yeah, he's now the biggest bottler in the country, I think, for Coca-Cola. So, I mean, the torch is... That torch is still burning. Burning burning bright and strong in the business world. Definitely. But in the name world... (laughs) I feel like he should switch back to Ulysses now. Yes. By the way, I like the name Ulysses. I I just... I, I think it comes off the tongue well. But anyway, my it, problem it is... All the things you can say about Ulysses, the last thing I would say is it comes off the tongue well. Well, I can say it properly, I guess. It's one of the few names I can uh, uh, master. I wonder, <laughs> was he was he named after, like, was there someone, maybe like his grandfather was Ulysses, and that's why he's junior. Yeah, but I don't know... Mm. Uh, or, was it, or was he named See, after the ancient the, Greek hero or the James Joyce novel or Ulysses S. Grant we don't know <laughs> but the problem is is that it's not when they use Junior it's in quotes it's not like that's uh, the end of his name like Ulysses or, <laughs> I oh say there it. you go I thought it was that's, I thought it was that's funny I I have been checkmated and my point comes to an end. So before we move on, because I've one other bit. Jordan interrupted me with nicknames and names and stuff there, but we have to keep him happy. Big paper daddy. I mean I think big paper daddy might uh, this I won't finish the sentence. Sounds strange. <laughs> They're on the boogie. Overall, considering how great this team was, they are so dramatically underappreciated and underrated. I don't want to say in books history because I feel like there are so many, there's so many icons of the team from that era that. Still to this day, books fans know a lot of guys who played at that time. But in the general NBA, even. First of all, Sidney Moncrief. Best player, not in the Hall of Fame, who has long been eligible. Is that fair? Feels pretty fair to me. I would say so. Certainly, Bucks. Oh, Bucks. without a doubt, Bucks. Without yeah. a doubt. Um, then, oh. Oh. then Marcus Johnson, and did I cut off a joke there? 
Oh, that was unfortunate. Um, <laughs> then you have Marcus Johnson and Paul Pressy not having their jerseys retired yet by the books. I feel they're pretty egregious. We've talked on, on Marcus Johnson's jersey quite a bit, but something I know to speak to you earlier, the books haven't retired a jersey of a player who played past 1984 yet. Obviously, that 30-year drought we mentioned earlier plays a part in that <laughs> but there were good players who played before that time also played after it oh man i'm wrong on that it's outside of sydney moncrief they haven't retired a jersey yeah. Play. yeah they're they're two guys who's they they really deserve to be honored like that johnson and pressy it's impressive. I don't feel as bad. I think it's both. Not especially. Uh, that was the wrong number way. But I just, I mean, from <laughs> this is not why you'd retire a number. But no one's going to go out and grab the number 25. <laughs> it's not one of the most used numbers. Well, you're saying it's harder to, there's always going to be an eight. You can't just. Dova Dova, Larry Sanders. Uh, uh, there was someone else recently, maybe. I don't know. Hmm. I was uh, just you just reminded me when we were talking about sort of players and numbers recently. I was playing, um, I was playing NBA 2K 16 a couple of days ago, and in my career, I don't know if I'm my second or third year in, whatever, I'm multiple years in. To the point where you've got like these auto-generated rookies. So I'm on the mouse. I came up against the books, and they've got this new point guard, and he wears number seven, and he could not look any more like Ursina Liosova. Mm. And I know that has no bearing on anyone whatsoever very off topic but i just i found it fascinating it was distracting if i'm honest that is because he was quite big as well uh oh if you want to if you want to see a big ursan eliasova i will have to show you this commercial that was made of him in turkey i will tweet it out when the podcast goes up and people listen to it because it is amazing (laughs) i found it randomly the other night i will say nothing more Wow, I mean that's that's a reward for those of you who've listened this deep into the podcast. Mm-hmm. Moving away from the eighties specifically. Last week I ranked my top ten choices for point guards to play for the Milwaukee Bucks. We discussed them on the podcast this week. I moved on to shooting guards, and we will do the same again. We will discuss them on the podcast. First of all, I'll run through my list, and then Jordan can tell me all the things he disagrees with. At number 10, member of some of those 80s books teams, Craig Hodges. At number 9, a name who will undoubtedly be familiar to every single one of you listening to this podcast current book the only current player who have put in either of the last two weeks lists 
Michael Carter Williams just didn't make it last week. Um, at nine, Chris Middleton. Number eight. One time quadruple double threat. Alvin Robertson. At seven, someone we mentioned earlier. <laughs> big, big paper daddy himself. <laughs> Ricky Pierce. <laughs> I've always been a big Ricky Pierce fan. I'm now worried that I've ruined being able to say his name without laughing forever. <laughs> I know Jordan will definitely not get through a Ricky Pierce ever again. <laughs> At number six, Paul Pressey. At number five, Johnny Mac. Just while we're on the subject of nicknames, names, Johnny Mac, I have a big problem with Johnny Mac, the nickname. Because there's no A? Because they put a H in it, and his name is John, J-O-N. Like his, it's not like his name was John. Wait, what? So I, I have this habit of where I will do... Johnny J O N N Y, but in writing this today, I wanted to call him by his nickname. I I typed it out and I went, okay, this looks weird. So I googled it, and the books always use Johnny with a H. Basically, anyone who ever are you saying about H him. or a H? H. H. No, see, H is how it's actually said in English. Oh. H is what I mean. You guys say. So it's H? Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's the same thing. We get it. That's true. I, I can't bring myself to say it your way. I make enough sacrifices. But <laughs> that's true. I've I big issues with this Johnny Mac. Let's drop the letter that we disagree on the pronunciation of. And and the A. Wait, wait, where did you see the H? Google it. Google Google Johnny Mac books. How you would feel as natural, and watch Google say, "Did you mean?" That's sad. That is absurd. So yeah, and it is. It's the books on Twitter. It's all sorts of stuff. But yeah, Johnny Mac. I mean, we're spelling it wrong, but he is at number five. The number age four. of numbers. <laughs> Number four, Brian Winders. Number three, Michael Red. At, at two, Ray Allen. Leaving Sid the Squid, Sir Sid, L Sid, Sidney Moncrief at number one. How do you feel about the list, Jordan? Where are we agreeing? Where are we disagreeing? <clears throat> no, uh, I like the list. Um, uh, I can't believe we're going to do five weeks of this where I do a list and then you go, I like the list. No, I, that's how I started and then I slowly... Oh, okay. Shuffle. So you're polite to begin with and then you tear the list apart. No, no, just just like this. Uh, obviously, I think top three or the first three: Moncrief, Allen, Red. I think that's 
it's hard to dispute that or break that up, put someone lower than another name or rank someone higher. I think that's pretty defined in, in most Bucks or if not all Bucks fans, top shooting guards. Um, but in the lead up to the top three, there I I was originally thinking, you know what? Chris Middleton or a Paul Pressey or even Alvin Robinson, because he did do very well. They deserve to be a little higher. That was my original thought. Chris Middleton, really? I mean that's not, that's the not, not so much not, not so much Middleton, but I would say Robertson, actually even Ricky Pierce, I, I would include that too. Big paper daddy. Uh I would you could make a, an argument for wanting to put them a little higher. I mean But the Johnny no, Mac thing makes sense because of his status of the team winning the championship. Championship. I mean, and being an all-star in the team's first ever season. That's true. First Bucks all-star. Yeah. That's a a fun fact. It's a very fun fact. So fun. that The word fun has an ancient. (laughs) I'm sorry. So fun that Jordan has lost it with that tangent. Um, (laughs) the, The real sort of... I guess the real thing that threw me on all of this. I had this difficulty last year as well, but where exactly do I put Paul Pressey in these lists? And last year... Position-wise opt- or rank-wise? Position-wise. And last year I opted to put him as a small forward. And then this year I was thinking, well, he's small forward, is he shooting guard? So I decided basketball reference could be the judge for me. So they have him playing marginally more seasons at shooting guard and small forward with the books. Um, And then even when Don Nelson talks about him, Nelson speaks about Paul Pressey was designed to be a forward, but because of his long arms and his passing ability, I always felt comfortable playing him at guard. Um, That's not as a guard, if we're being pedantic, um, or it's not in the way that maybe Jason Kidd talks about playing Yanis as a I don't want to say point guard because that's wrong but it's everywhere it's now you can't read any article without Yanis point guard which isn't true but mm-hmm. Don Nelson was very specific he played Paul Pressey at guard so with that I said okay he better make it into small forwards so then Pressey yeah. Or into into sorry into shooting guards. See, just so confusing. Um, so with that, I feel Johnny Mac. I actually had Johnny Mac at four, and then just by Brian Winter's numbers were so convincing, I bumped them up. But even now, when I look at that, as I touched on a few minutes ago, I don't know. Maybe the timing of Winter's peak should bump him down a little bit. Maybe that does mean Johnny Mac's contribution is more valuable maybe pressies is more valuable um it's very tight in that sort of middle section ricky pierce at seven feels low to me but then he was he was really important at the same time he was a sixth man he wasn't 
the team wouldn't have been as good without Ricky Pierce, but it would have been good still and survived. A guy like that, though, ensured they could keep like the 50-win style pace up. Robertson, I mean, he wasn't around as long. That's the only reason he's down there. Alvin yeah. Robertson, obviously things post-basketball and off the court have tarnished his legacy, I think, in the mind of a lot of people in a pretty significant way. And that's understandably so. But some of the things Alvin Robertson did on a basketball court in his career, I mean, go look at Alvin Robertson's numbers. That's insane. There, has no, there hasn't been a player like that since. No. That can just literally... We talk about guys who can do everything. Alvin Robertson could really do everything. Uh, I mean, he averaged over three steals a game, which in an era where it's not like the early days of basketball. You know what I mean? Yeah. This was like, we're talking late 80s, even into the 90s, and he was like, it's really incredible. And his time with the Spurs is just mind-blowing. That quadruple-double, a 10-steal game. He's the only quadruple-double in NBA history with 10 steals. Uh, Most of the others... I think there's only three others. Two of them are Hakeem. Um, and they are blocks. I can't remember who the other one was. David Robinson? Yes, you're right. It is David Robinson. Yeah. That's pretty incredible company. When you consider how often David Robinson and Hakeem get discussed in comparison to Alvin Robertson. It's pretty wild. But yeah, really great, great player. Um, he's another guy. If if he had been with the books a few years earlier, if he those San Antonio years, if he was somehow in Milwaukee, I mean, imagine a Moncrief Robertson backcourt. It's the, it's the best defensive backcourt in history. It's not even close. Yeah. No comparison to that. It would be completely sort of both those guys in their prime together is not like anything the league has ever really seen or likely ever will see um although they did have a very brief overlap i mean moncrief's Moncrief's health wasn't really what it was he wasn't the same player at the stage Alvin robertson arrived in milwaukee Mm-hmm. And then, I don't know, the last two spots I battled with, I felt Hodges was a was an important part where Ricky Pierce came off the bench. Hodges was the starter on those teams. Numbers aren't, they're good, if not sort of earth-shattering. But at the same time, if we look at it from today's perspective where something like gravity is such a big factor in the makeup of a team, I don't think you could underestimate what having one of the greatest three-point shooters ever on the floor with the caliber of teammates he had in Milwaukee. You can't underestimate what that would do. And I think that was further proven when he went on to Jordan's Bulls and won two championships in Chicago. My Bulls. Yeah. 
And then I have Chris Middleton in there as well. Is there anyone I've excluded? There was one player who I I had a look at and could have edged out one of Middleton or Hodges. But is there anyone you feel I excluded that should have made it in, could have made it in? As far as like a prominent one, not really. Um, yeah, I can't really think of one. Obviously, you can bring up who you thought. Well, I'll get that. I want a second, but the first one that came to mind for me was actually Dale Ellis. Oh, um, there you go, yeah. But once again, I trusted in basketball references position indicator on this and although he played a lot at shooting guard in seattle with the books he's classified as a small forward by the way dale ellis's nickname oh boy. is lamar mundane it's not very catchy is it i mean it's a bit it's more of an alias than that <laughs> yeah than you want to say that's like that's what when dale ellis was traveling with the team and they were checking into a hotel. Yeah. He book in under Lamar Mundane. One of his many aliases. Yeah, unusual. But so, although that's known as a shooting guard in Seattle. And, he, I mean, he, was he wasn't there that long as well. He was only a, year a season. And a half. Yeah, less even. A season and a bit. Um, Numbers were really good in that time, but I mean, if we're talking, if the depth for shooting guard in history was like the depth for point guard, there would be no doubt that Dale Ellis would have. Dale been Ellis is the Gary Payton. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's he would he would have been he's a little bit better than that in books history. I mean, these yeah. people don't hate Dale, Dale Ellis. I mean, he's sort of people are neutral on Dale Ellis. Who cares about Dale Ellis? Lamar Mundane, who cares? Lamar Mundane. And the other the other player I considered, which is probably the first time in my life in any way, shape, or form that I've considered this player, um, was Todd Day. A pretty disappointing eight overall pick in books history, not the only disappointing top ten pick that the franchise have had over the years. Many soon would follow. Yeah, but compared to those, Todd Day was actually not that bad, particularly early. He had on. a very, he had a very uh, hot shooting season for before he was eventually traded to the Celtics. Yeah, and that's what nearly clinched his place in the sort of nine ten region of this list. Before I ultimately decided to bring Middleton in and that bumped Hodges down, but in ninety four ninety five. Another one of those stellar books here is that we'll talk about next week when we like. Good God. I, I don't know how we're going to get through next week's podcast, but he averaged 16 points and shot 39% from three. A 5.1 attempts per game as well, um, which was a big way up from the 3.3 per game he averaged in his time as a book. So overall, you're in relative agreement. The middle yes. could do with some juggling, but yes, but pretty, all pretty tight there. I think you'll agree. I think it's rock solid. Once you get past the top three, 
it gets a lot less clear cut. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's time for the mail like. First question from at David on 21. I was really glad to see this question because this is something while writing this shooting guard piece um, that I was thinking about. Question is, despite being only a five year book, look at Terry Cummings numbers. Factoring in team success, doesn't he hold a share of number 34? The follow-up question to this was, along the same lines, who owns 22, Pierce or Red? Of course, the fascinating detail in all of this is both of those numbers are not just in use with current books, but two of the most prominent current books. Mm-hmm. So following in the footsteps of Terry Cummings and Ray Allen, we now have Yanis Antetokounmpo, while way more eerily following Pierce and Red, we have Chris Middleton, which is just this weird sort of, I don't know, scorer slash shooting guard arrives at the books for day one and they're just like, okay, well, I want I want to wear 11. Well, sorry, you can't wear oh, 11. You just, Here's 22. Oh. And the reason I said 11 was because there's only a certain kind of shooting guard they can give 22 to, and they just give other guys 11. You just reminded me of something I totally forgot about until now. Uh, I remember after the trade, it was actually, I think it was the day that they unveiled or introduced Chris Milton and uh, Brandon Knight. <laughs> so they unveiled the jersey numbers that they're going to wear, and they gave Chris Milton. It was like on Instagram, he was holding 22. And one of the first comments I saw, because I was just like, I wanted to, they didn't reveal the number. You had to click on the link, obviously, to see it. And this guy just got so mad. He, but he's, he kept saying, like, that's not, you're wearing Michael Red's number, but he spelled Michael Red wrong. So it looked like Michelle Reed. And he kept writing Michelle, <laughs> that's Michelle Reed. I don't know. It was, it's not a very good story. And all, and all these years later, I'm sure that person uh, lives in our comment section. Oh. It's me. It was me. That's why. It's you, I, really? Okay. No, no, I'm joking. Uh, yeah, go on. That was, that was a zero story. <laughs> that was an anecdote. How unusual for you, Jordan? I'm more of a, a three on a scale of one to ten, I would say. Not a ten, zero. okay. That was... Uh... Yeah, not on um, a scale of one to five. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. With this whole number thing, it gets a little weird, though, doesn't it? As in, so Cummings is another guy who he has a very valid claim that he deserves his jersey retired. Mm-hmm. And you know Ray Allen, likewise. Um, although, considering the likes of Johnson, Pressy, Cummings haven't had theirs retired. Ray Allen has a long time to wait for that. He'll be still working on his comeback, maybe, by the time the Bucks retire his jersey. And then you've Giannis, and who knows what he'll do. 
I guess they all hold a share of it. I, I nearly feel it makes the jersey more special. Yeah. I, know, I maybe, mean, maybe, sorry to go across, but maybe it just comes from a soccer background for me. But soccer, it's rare that a jersey gets retired. More often than not, if a jersey has retired, someone has died. So if you're a really sort of big club, often if a new player comes in and they get to wear the number seven jersey, that's a big deal. Or the number 10 jersey, that's a big deal. They're following in the footsteps of all these great players. And as great as it is, as it is to see jersey retirements, I think there's something cool about that as well, to have this sort of being able to sort of, I don't know, pass on the torch. Just mm-hmm. unfortunate that Junior Bridgman didn't also wear 34. But... USDs. <laughs> that you then go, this was Terry Cummings' number, Ray Allen's number, Yanis' number. This was... Ricky Pierce's number, Michael Red's number, Chris Middleton's number. There is something cool in that at the same time, isn't there? Yeah, and I mean, we can't forget the other, uh, another prominent figure that wore a 34, uh, David Noel of, uh, of <laughs> Bucks fame, his one and only season. Uh, you know, and another you know, heated debate that I have is who owns number six? Is it Joel Prisbilla or is it Andrew Bogut? We, these are the type of questions we will never Keep have us to answer like. for. Yes, exactly. I hardly slept last night because I had this question in my, in my mind. Um, but I would say 22, if I, if I could be Judge Judy and Executioner, I would say uh, – 22. That's, that is Jordan's worst joke ever. <laughs> that's, the most, that's the most unnecessary joke Jordan has ever made in the podcast. <laughs> uh, I can't even say what I was going to say. Um, pretend I have a gal. A gal and a gal. <laughs> This has gotten off the rails really bad. Uh, I would say 22, the rightful owner, banging gavel, Michael Red. What about Alex English? He was another 22. So was Taylor Swift. I mean. Oh, my God. There is something to Alex English, though. I mean, a Hall of Fame shooting guard. Okay. Do you speak English? Didn't pan out with the books. <laughs> but once again, fitting this weird mold of guys who wear 22, I think it's a really weird quirk in books history. I, I think to answer the question itself, which I'll have to do because I don't know if Jordan's capable of that. <laughs> I don't think I am. Um, I think recency bias is always going to be the biggest factor in this. I think Cummings definitely holds a share of 34, as Ray Allen does. But right now, it's very hard to look at that number as anything other than Yanis' number. Yes. Yeah. 22 is turning like that with Middleton, but Red is still a little bit more recent. So once again, you probably lean towards it being his number. But if Middleton... If Middleton gets up to five, six, seven years with the books. And keeps what, up his play, too. That's yeah. obviously important. 
even if it wasn't quite at this level, if it's a little bit less than you've spent the last seven years watching Chris Middleton wear 22 for the books, I mean, he's going to feel like 22. So I think recency factors into it, but overall, they all own a piece of it. It just it will get really weird. I mean, what did, what did they do? Did they eventually just wait and retire 34 and have a ceremony where all the former 34s come out? Literally all of them. Ray Allen, uh, Terry Cummings, Giannis, David Noel, and sure I'm missing other 34s. There is no question that you're missing other 34s. Would you like some of the examples? Yes, I would. Fred Roberts was one that I felt oh. was notable enough because Fred Roberts could actually play. Um, so when I know you've talked about in the podcast before, although I'm not quite oh. sure why. Reese Gaines. Reese Gaines, oh, for uh, Wisconsin native, actual Wisconsin yeah, native. And that's actually that's why we talked about him on the podcast before. Yes. Um, Greg Anderson. I don't. Clyde Mays, Jerome Lane. Jerome Lane. Yeah, they're the other 34s. They'll all come out together. Reese Gaines, proud moment for Wisconsinites everywhere. A true homecoming. Yeah, I think recency bias is my answer to that question. They all own a piece of it, but it just gets skewed a little bit depending on who is the current owner or the most recent owner to big things in that jersey. Next one from Atmetastic. I was just hoping you guys could discuss books legend Pace Mannion. Pace Mannion sounds like he'd make a great racehorse. Yes. Or a the name of a Pace car in the Indy 500, Pace Mannion. That's the that's, that's a little like on the nose. That's, I mean, that's our thoughts on Pace Mannion. Um, from at 33 Trigger, in 300 words, which, I mean, we're not the, we are definitely not the most succinct duo ever to share thoughts in podcast form. Explain no. why Sidney Moncrief gets nowhere near enough love. Do you have a, do you have a reason why you feel that a is? Theory? Yeah. Um, I don't. And I think that's a lot of it just because I wasn't born when he was playing. Um, but I don't understand why he's done the Hall of Fame. I don't. Obviously, he has ties with the Bucks. He was the announcer for a couple of years. Those are some glorious years. Fortunate was the word I was going to use, but how I wasn't even a books fan. But I remember watching a Hawks game on League Pass. The Hawks would go to Milwaukee. I get the books feed. Was this there in the terrible season or? Uh... Yeah, there was that... only he was only there two, two years. years. It was the, the terrible season and the year before. It's only two years, weren't they? It was the terrible season, the five hundred season. No, was it? Yeah. Well, okay. So then I have more experience of it than I thought because I was right. Maybe he did a couple guest ones, but I don't think he was officially a part of the crew until then. 
Okay, well then I definitely did watch a lot of books games when he was the primary announcer. But what I was gonna say is I remember watching Hawks books games in Milwaukee and be like, oh, that Paschke guy, he seems really good. But Sidney Moncrief, my God. I don't I just feel like he's a guy whose voice isn't even suited to a broadcast. This is blasphemy. We we're supposed to help his case and you're tearing I, I really like I really like pretty much everything about Sidney Moncrief except his broadcasting. I would I did enjoy him. last year when he came it was just in game, wasn't it? It was like one of their in quarter interviews, like second yeah. quarter. That was a lot of fun. I mean, he Sydney Moncrief. Word, the day. In one but, word, I would, uh, the one word I would describe Sydney Moncrief's announcing career with the Bucks: a dunk shot. That's that's what I would say it was. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed him last year for that one quarter when he also had. Marcus Johnson talking alongside him. That was good, but on his own. Why don't uh, local teams do like a three-man broadcast? Why is that not a thing? Local that... teams? Yeah, so why do... The Hornets have one. Do they? Yes. Isn't that... Did they add a female announcer recently? Yeah, Stephanie Reddy or something like that. Yeah, Stephanie Ray, I think that's her name. I think actually a couple of people or a couple of teams do do three man. I mean, the books could do killer three man teams. You know, look at if they keep the four, the four man rotation they had last year. If you have yeah. one of one of Gus or Paschke leading off, and then so I don't know if anyone. Maybe you just can't. The force of nature that is John McLaughlin making. Star Wars noises. You can have him making Star Wars noises. Marcus Johnson doing his his eagle impression. <laughs> Want to hear it? That was just a very random thought that came to mind, but weird, weird quirk that you don't see more of that considering national announcing teams seem to do it quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, my theory on Moncrief not getting anywhere near enough love is. Probably one of the biggest things that gets associated with him is like this famous Jordan quote about the oh, toughest yeah. guy he's ever played against. It also works against him because he was a shooting guard in the era of Jordan. So mm-hmm. <laughs> every shooting guard who wasn't Jordan at the time just gets overlooked. And he was the next even, best guy, basically. Even like Clyde Drexler kind of yeah. takes uh, 100% easy 100% Clyde Drexler. Drexler, yeah. if he was like 10 years earlier, his career would be completely different. But we're talking of announcers now, and Clyde Drexler comes up. I mean, we'll move he's on. He's no Sydney Minecraft when he's uh announcer. He's no, I'd take Sid over Drexler and all of that Rockets team. Yeah, they actually have three guys sometimes, don't they? I think so. I think it's more common than we think. Well, don't don't lumber yourself in with it. It was was my mistake. If it's, if it's the and case, you think. yeah, there you go. Singular. Next one from at Alex underscore Kane zero two three. Is Jack going to be more of an impact on the quarter off? Will we even be able to differentiate? 
And will he be a good coach when he inevitably becomes a coach in a couple of years? Um, hmm. Well, the first parts. I don't know. That's kind of too close to call. Because I honestly, I'm, I am a, I, I think you think the same way. He's going to play, and it's not going to be just garbage time minutes. That could be. Five minutes. I, I feel like he's going to be playing at least 15 minutes a night, 15 to 17 minutes a night, especially early on. I think that's that. I that might scare some people, but that I feel like that would be helpful for them. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good thing. He's a good shooter too, and that's one thing that he holds over Vaughn, and I give him the benefit of the doubt over Brogdon at this point. Um, yeah, and Michael Carter Williams and Tyler Evans. I, I think the on-court, off-court impact is different with him because even if he isn't shooting well early in the season, I still think he can be a positive on-court sort of impact maker if he is keeping things together in-game on-court. Yeah. The books need that. They don't need a guy. They, it's not like they have a bad locker room, that the culture of the locker room needs to be changed. They need veteran experience on the court to tie things together when they hit a rough patch in game. Mm-hmm. So that is very much what he could do. So I, I feel it's on the court. Um, even if it's not tied to his play, it's not off-court leadership. The Bucks really need on-court veteran leadership. Yeah. Will he be a good coach? Jerry's out on that one. We'll see how he does this year with his on-court leadership and what he can help to get out of the books. I I would almost expect him, I mean, if everything continues to go to plan for the books and Jason Kidd is still around, if he doesn't jump straight into a college head coaching job like he tried to this year, I could see him being an assistant coach with the books when he finishes up. Makes too much sense considering his relationship with Kidd if things then go well for him in his own playing spell in Milwaukee, that would seem like a very natural fit for him to start in a coaching capacity. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely possible. The next one from Metastic. When baseball doesn't work out and Tim Tebow turns to basketball, what position would he play for the books? I had a yeah. What position would he uh, equipment manager? Yeah, I I have nothing to say on this. No, I had a I'm, joke about I I had a joke thinking about it because I but I decided against saying it or tweeting it because I like to make jokes sometimes. But I, I thought it was too mean. But I will say it anyway. I, I, regarding the whole Tebow baseball thing, I, I was going to say uh, it's funny that Tim Tebow is starting to play baseball because he throws like a person that has had Tommy John surgery. That's a funny <laughs> joke. Is, I, I'm, am I missing the joke in that? That just seems like... Yeah, see, that's what, that's what I'm saying. I yeah, thought I, against it. I don't, I don't think it's even a joke. I just think it's just that's... just a barb. 
That's yeah, the, that's the very that's actually, actually, ribbing. That's ribbing. I'm yeah, ribbing. Like, that makes me go. <sighs> but he's not a good thrower. He's not. Well, I have no idea, but I mean, if there's one way for me to care less about former NFL player Tim Tebow, it's from to play baseball. Come on, I don't care about that. Message from Michael Jordan. From at Alex underscore K-023. Over, under, 100 made three-pointers for Yanis and Jabari each. Under all round on me for this. Yeah. I mean, if they made one a game each, that would be pretty good. That would be progress. More than that, really... that almost to 82. Yeah, more than that is really pushing our look. Yes. Once again, Alex underscore counting zero to three. Convince me why Johnny O'Brien wouldn't add wins to this year's books team. He's a throwback player. How would he have fared in the 80s? I think in the 80s, Johnny O'Brien would be exactly what he is now which is like on the end of a bench fighting to stay in the league because he is he's literally he's the exact same he has a timeless quality about him where he is neither very good nor very bad although some people dispute that and no matter what time frame you put him in he plays like he's from the 80s um that's the second one uh, sure, I, I'm guessing wins are added, but maybe not for the Bucks. Jordan is really struggling tonight. Yeah. This is one of Jordan's worst podcast appearances. I think the fans and listeners would agree. It was that Dr. Have- J story. That, that's what set... I, I did sort of spring that on you, so... Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, Johnny O'Brien, of course, we should probably mention, is now with the Washington Wizards. JLB to DC. Very good chance of making that roster. They only have 13 guaranteed contracts to hold. One of the best teams in the NBA from to land with if he plans on making a roster because they've got open spots. Do they have a D-League team, by the way? No, I'm pretty sure they do not. Huh. What, are you, what are you insinuating? Johnny O'Brien does not need a daily thing. That deafening silence. Wow. Last one from Alex Scorcanic 023. You're remaking Space Jam 1 for the books. Who's Michael? Who's Bill Murray? I, and who's who's like, Wayne Knight? Yeah, that's I mean that's a really important part. Yeah. Um, I clarified this. I asked, was it? Are we talking all time? Or are we talking now? He said both. So. Well, I've, I may have made this joke before, and it makes sense that he be cast Michael. Giannis dunks like he is Michael Jordan at the end of Space Jam. So rightful, he's the rightful owner. Rightful heir. Who's Bill Murray? I feel that's a very hard one to 
No, who is Bill Murray? That was just a. Oh, he, he's a, he's an actor. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> so a little, a regular avid Costello right there. Um, <laughs> that was that was fittingly. I mean, if this was not a 1980s episode, <laughs> but like a 1940s <laughs> episode, that would have been a very fitting comedy routine that Jordan just put together. <laughs> That was full on. Take my wife. No, please take my please. wife. Yeah, I wear it a little like a, a derby. <laughs> I part my hair. Um, who's Bill Murray? <laughs> That's tough to say from like a player perspective. Let's go, Greg Foster. Let's just give it out to Greg Foster. So he's just gonna. The big game will come, and Greg Foster's is going to suit up. And... I have a uh, yeah, yeah. And then who's Kramer or who's a new <laughs> Kramer is a different discussion altogether. But who's Newman in this scenario? I can who's only Newman? justify. Calling I had to remember what was his like. I'm totally blanking on what his like. I'm pretty ball. sure he gets like rolled up into a ball and bounced around the place. He makes friends. Does he get with... sucked into the golf course in the hole? Yeah, that, that definitely happens. But he makes friends with Tweedy. Then, who? Well, I have a. Oh, I've got it! I've got it! It's Steve Novak. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah. Come yeah, yeah. on, it's Steve Novak. Yeah. Everybody. Open your window and say Steve Novak is the Wayne Knight of uh, basketball players. Yeah, and just to clear that up, for I don't know, everyone's seen Seinfeld, really, haven't they? Mm. But they should. Me saying Newman is, of course, Wayne Knight. I, I almost said Kramer, which would yeah. be a, a very interesting. I don't know who the Kramer of the books would be. Who's the Bob Sacamano? I feel like we need to do a, a Seinfeld books podcast. I haven't thought that true and how any of that works. But, it probably doesn't work. Well, that's never stopped us before, Jordan. That is true. All time. Who's who's Michael? Who's Bill Murray? Well, Novak is Wade Knight, so we won't change that. Who's Michael? Who's Bill Murray? I think, again, I, I have the image of Giannis stretching his limbs, so I can't think of anyone else. I I, I think I'd go... Darvin Ham? I'm surprised you didn't do that, but I, I think Moncrief. It's not the same image, but it's just like... It's hmm. not... Jordan's in it because he's Jordan, because he was the guy. You know what I mean? So if we're talking the guy... Oh, yeah, well, what about Kareem? I just can't imagine Kareem playing with Looney Tunes. Sidney Moncrief, I, I think, I think he could get on board with that. Like, he maybe he feel at home. Can or cannot confirm, but I don't know. Once again, for Kareem, I don't know if that would. Uh, I mean, if if he had to move on from Milwaukee. Yeah, not sure. sure. Not sure how you'd feel about playing with cartoon characters. 
they would have a culturally was was the first was the first incompatible wasn't it culturally incompatible true because one is real life and the other's animated um bill murray historically mike dunlevy senior who do we say for present day why am i already forgetting oh yeah i said greg foster you didn't answer it basically. This part was too hard, so you made a joke. As I often do. Um, Mike Dunleavy, why? 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 I'm just wondering why. I just feel like he sort of pops up randomly at different points of books history. Not he doesn't have the same sort of jovial disposition maybe <laughs> yeah have you ever heard that famous mike dunleavy story where uh he went up behind someone and covered their eyes <laughs> i'm doing a bill murray joke there's a classic bill murray story where he goes behind someone and covers their eye covers their eyes with his hands and he they you know Guess who or something like that, and they, the the person turns around, and he's he they like you know obviously go surprised or something like shocked. And he says no one will believe this story when you tell them, and then walks off. I mean, that, Mike Dunleavy Senior needs to do that. Yeah, heck, Mike Dunleavy needs to do that. Let's let's get him. <laughs> Mike Dunleavy would put his hands over to the junior <laughs> put his hands over their eyes and someone would throw an elbow <laughs> yeah. on that note that <laughs> this, is, this is one of the weirdest podcasts we've ever done and next week we will look at 90s books oh, so <laughs> prepare for it to get weirder um thank you very much for listening <laughs> really this one in particular we appreciate yeah. it um, <laughs> make sure to continue to follow all of our books history stuff on site subscribe to us on itunes follow us on soundcloud add us on stitcher We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you.